Welcome to Crosswalk Radio, the Bible teaching radio ministry of Crosswalk Church in Daytona Beach, Florida. Take your Bibles and join us today in Romans chapter 1 as Pastor Mitch Pridgen continues his teaching through this New Testament book. Look at how Paul expresses himself to these fellow believers. Number one, first Paul says, first I thank my God. Look at what he says in verse 8. First I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. So here we see the way he expresses himself. No doubt, as an apostle of Jesus Christ, one specifically called to carry the gospel to the nations of the first century. Paul was indeed thankful for believers wherever they may be. It doesn't matter where, whether it's the most remote, insignificant, Lystra, Lystra, it doesn't matter, most insignificant places out there. It doesn't matter. Paul was concerned for believers. But think about it with me a moment too. Especially would Paul show concern for those who were in the capital city of the whole empire of Rome. It's not that he didn't care for the small, insignificant places where believers gathered. But here are believers who are meeting and worshiping God. Where? In the very seat of world power at that time. In the city of Rome. The fact that these believers had not only carried the gospel throughout the city, accompanied by their commitment to the gospel, was enough for Paul to be thankful. Consider with me for a moment. Paul has suffered dearly and severely for his commitment to the gospel. I don't know. I don't, I'm not going to get a horse here. I'll, I'll chase a rabbit or ride a horse. I don't need to ride. But I will tell you this, that I don't, I don't know how prosperity preachers deal with these passages of Scripture. But look in 2 Corinthians with me for a moment. Hold your place over in Romans. And, and look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11. In fact, I could tell you a story I won't. One of my friends actually confronted a well-known, one of the most popular prosperity preachers and, and asked him to open his Bible and turn to chapter 11 and read these verses. And he stood there while the preacher did it. They were in a meeting together or at a bookseller's convention together. And after he made sure the guy read it, he watched him read the scripture. He says, now what do you have to say about that? And, and the prosperity preacher looked at him and said, wow, and closed his Bible and walked away. All he could say. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 16 through, through 33, in these verses, Paul writes concerning his sufferings. In other words, what has Paul done? Those who say there's no place for suffering in a Christian's life don't understand the Christian life. And that's the doctrine that's out there today. If you're suffering, there's something wrong with you. That's a lack of faith. There's something in your life. There's sin. There's something wrong because you as a Christian should not be suffering. Then what's Paul's excuse? Other than the fact that he was called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God... And called to take the gospel to the nations. And he suffered dearly for doing that very thing. Now how would you like these things added to your resume? Let's say that you're considering hiring a church pastor. I hope that you're not considering that. But let's say that you are looking for a pastor. 
and you say, submit to me your resume. And, and this is the res, part of the resume that you get in verses 23, in verses 23 through 28. Listen to what Paul says here. He says, are they servants of Christ? I am a better one talking to false apostles and those who have attacked his ministry. I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one, 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robber, robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger in the sea, danger from false brothers. In toil and what? Hardship. Through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Wow. Look at what Paul is saying there. All those things. Paul had reason. Paul had reason to be thankful that the gospel continued to spread and to gain faithful adherence. Whether these particular saints were the direct, direct result of Paul's ministry, which they were not, the issue with him was, was not different, was not changed. Regardless of how they had heard the gospel and how they came to saving, saving faith in Jesus Christ, Paul was thankful for them. He knew in reality God had done something. God had sovereignly called each and every one of them, just like he had sovereignly called Paul. And Paul does not mention or even hint to how they came to faith in Christ. What he does do, however, is to give thanks where it belongs through Jesus Christ. You have come to faith how? Not through the preaching of some man, not because you followed some man, some man but you have come to faith in Christ through what? Or through who? Through Christ. It is God who's brought you sovereignly to a knowledge of His gospel. And that for that, Paul says, I am thankful. I am so thankful. And then secondly, Paul then gives the specific rather than the general reason I just mentioned for his thankfulness. He writes in verse 8, back to Romans 8, he writes, or Romans 1, he writes in verse 8, he says, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Paul says, I'm thankful for you because your faith is spoken of in all the world or is mentioned, proclaimed in all the world. So Paul mentions what Calvin called the, quote, celebrity of their faith. The celebrity of their faith. Here they are. Think with me for a moment. Here they are, a group of Christians. Now, I want you to stop for a moment, and I really won't take long here, but stop for a moment and consider what this meant. You are in Rome, the seat of world authority at that time. The Roman Empire has basically conquered for the most part virtually all the known world. Not all of it, but virtually all the known world at that time, at least the western part of the world. 
And so think with me for a moment in regards to what it meant in that time to be called a Christian. They were followers of and believers in a seemingly nobody, are you ready for this, a seemingly nobody Jewish carpenter from a seemingly insignificant place in the Middle East, some remote part of the empire that had turned preacher and prophet who was, number one, vilified by his own people, and finally arrested, scourged, and crucified until dead by the very authorities of the Roman Empire. And here they are, followers of this person in Rome. We don't think anything about that today. I mean, in our Western society, especially America right now, and in times past, I mean, we could wear our little Christian pins, and it meant absolutely nothing. In the sense that no one would be willing to critic. Oh, some might look at us and, and laugh or sneer, but just it was minor laughing or sneering. But to them, this was a very costly thing to identify with such a person. Very costly thing for them to call themselves a follower of Christ, one who was like Christ. What that meant. Here they are, Christians in the very seat of this great Roman Empire, the city of the Caesars. And their faith is such that it is the conversation piece, the conversation piece throughout the entire Christian world, their faith there in Rome. There is only one other church, only one other church that Paul mentions in this fashion, and that is the church at Thessalonica. In 1 Thessalonians 5, well, chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. Turn there with me a moment because I want you to see this. I remember going through our exposition of this, these particular books, First and Second Thessalonians. And in First Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5 through 8, look at what Paul writes here. He says, Because our gospel came to you not only in word, 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 5, Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us as and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you who became example to all believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. So Paul commends this church in, in Thessalonica for their faith. And, and this church was about to have unleashed against it tremendous persecution. So church, it does not matter. It does not matter. Where we live, where a person lives, doesn't matter. Where the church of Christ is, there is no excuse for not maintaining a faith that is commendable. Listen to me. I'm going to slow down and I'm going to repeat that. No matter where the church is located, no matter where Christians are, there is no excuse for not maintaining a faith that is commendable. Now, someone might say, well, you don't understand. I live in so-and-so. 
And they may name a particular city or a particular locale where it's bad, Pastor. It's real bad. You may be right. It may indeed be bad. But why should that adversity and negativity affect your testimony as a Christian? If anything, in the midst of such a generation, our light should shine brighter. Our salt should have a greater test. Amen? Or taste. A greater taste. The whole world, let me tell you, just in case you didn't realize this, not that I'm going to inform you of anything you don't already know, the whole world is bad. It doesn't matter where you are. Well, I live in the Bible Belt. Oh my goodness, well that, that doesn't mean a thing. No, it doesn't mean anything. The whole world is bad. All lost people in every locale are at enmity against God and His glorious gospel. And this is all the more reason, all the more reason for our faith, that our faith should shine and be spoken of in a commendable way. Wow, they live in so-and-so, and yet their faith is commended. They're a strong church. They're strong people of faith. They're strong Christians, regardless of where they live. And that is exactly what Paul is commending them for. There you are in Rome, and your faith is spoken of all over the world. And how commendable that is. Here's a church in pagan Rome where the very leader believes himself to be deity that worshipped the true God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This was indeed a worthy topic of conversation among Christians throughout the world and sufficient reason for the thankfulness on the part of the Apostle Paul. So Paul's words are, are meant to do something here. Paul's words are meant to strengthen them. These are encouraging words. They are being spoken well of and honored by their fellow believers around the world. Their faith, and I wish I had time to really just exposit that thought or word of the faith. Their faith is in the gospel had even reached the ears of the Apostle Paul and it produced in him thankfulness. Here's a people he'd never seen face to face. Here's a place he'd never visited. People he had never fellowshiped with. And everywhere he went, everywhere he went, I can imagine someone pulling him aside, oh, Paul, have you heard about the saints at Rome? Here they are in Rome, the seat of the Caesars, and they are worshiping God. And the church is growing, and the church is expanding, the gospel is going forth. Paul, have you heard about that? And can you imagine the heart of the apostle? Well, you know what? I didn't have anything to do with that. I'm, I'm kind of upset about that. I didn't have anything to do with that. Really? No, his heart, what? Overflows with thankfulness that the gospel is growing. The gospel is expanding. But these people are maintaining and sustaining their faith. And it produced in him thankfulness. It's amazing how much you can glean from one man's thankfulness, isn't it? Today, when we hear the faith of our fellow believers, think with me for a moment on this. When we hear of the faith of our fellow believers in places where there is great persecution. Don't, don't fall asleep, church. The church is being persecuted all over the world. In fact, it is highly likely, according to the voice of the martyrs and other agencies, that in the time I spend speaking to you the gospel this morning, brothers and sisters in Christ will die in this world for their faith. Whether it's some radical Islamist lining up 21 Christians on the shores and, and, chop and cutting their heads off 
or whether it's bursting into a secret place of worship this morning and arresting and killing Christians that you may never hear about. They are being persecuted. So when we hear the faith of these fellow believers, that in spite of that intimidation and in spite of that real possibility that would happen to them, what are they doing? Rather than abandoning their faith, they're worshiping. They're gathering They're risking it all, laying it all down. And we ought to be this morning saying, thank God our hearts should be overwhelmed with thankfulness for our brothers and sisters in Christ all over the world who in spite of the persecution, in spite of the dangers of worshiping Christ, are doing just that very thing. As I wrote this this week, my heart was thankful. And I did pause and think about our brothers and sisters, especially those who are called to preach the gospel as I am, who are risking their very lives by gathering people together and teaching the glorious truths of God's gospel. And laying their lives. Many are being drugged drugged out of their their villages and are stoned and left for dead. They're being brutally beaten and abused and then led back into their villages to serve as an example to worshipers there saying, if you continue, this is what will happen to you. And losing everything. Next in verses 9 and 10. Sorry for my passion on that matter. But in verses 9 and 10, Paul tells them how their faith motivates him. Look at what he says. Look at verses 9, verse 9a and the second part of verse 9. He says, For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son. Paul's. First two parts of that verse. Number one, for God is my witness. Regardless of how you might want to interpret this statement, this is an oath. Paul appeals to God as to the truth he is about to declare. He's saying, what I'm about to say to you, I say before God as a witness. And so he warned his readers to be fully persuaded, fully persuaded of his sincerity and therefore in the form of an oath without violating Christ's prohibition of such. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 34, he talks about swearing. Paul is in effect saying, before God, my heart stands judged according to this matter. There's nothing wrong with that. He's speaking, first of all, apostolically, correct? He's being led by the Holy Spirit. And this would, what would that do to his readers as they're reading this? As they read that verse, as God is my witness, that just adds gravity to what he's about to say. It adds tremendous weight to it. By virtue of his position as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And secondly, he says, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son. What in the world is he saying? Serve in my spirit the gospel of his son. What exactly is Paul saying? It must first be seen in context of how he opened this verse. First, the whom Paul speaks of we know is God. And so Paul's service is to God. He can appeal to God as his witness because it is God he serves. 
So Paul is, you'll recall from verse 1, a doulos of Christ or a slave of Christ. Paul is not appealing as the unregenerate do to the God they do not know. You'll hear people say all the time, and forgive me for saying this, even using this terminology, well, I swear to God. For an unregenerate person, that means absolutely nothing. As God is my witness to an unregenerate person, what does that mean? It means absolutely nothing. Because there is no relationship. You wouldn't swear anyway, but you might would say, as God is my witness... If and truly you know him personally, and you're willing for your words and what you're about to say to stand in judgment by him in that moment, but they don't know him. They're already under his wrath. And they're trying to call upon him as a witness in regards to their own regeneration. Oh, he will witness it. He will witness it with them one day. So he appeals to God because he knows God. Quite the contrary, Paul not only knows him, but serves him even more. Paul serves him with his spirit. And Paul uses the word spirit here intentionally. And it is, the, it is a derivative of the word pneuma in the Greek, which means breath, wind, or spirit. And it implies strongly that Paul's service is not... Here, here's what it means. It means that Paul's service is not merely an outward... Um, not, a, just a, not an outward expression, is what I'm trying to think of here, an outward expression, but that which is deeply rooted and seated in his heart. In other words, I just don't serve God flippantly, externally. I serve him from the very core of my existence. That's the expression Paul is, is rooted and seated in his heart, his services. Paul doesn't wear a mask of religion, as Calvin said, like false apostles or imposters who live two lives. They're one thing on the outside and completely another thing on the inside. He testifies that from the heart he serves his Lord. And this adds weight to how he opened the verse. So Paul's service is specifically mentioned here as in the gospel of his son. And here's one of the many names given the gospel, the gospel of his son. Now, some interpretations of this verse, like the one we find in the New American Standard Bible, if you have that version with you, it inserts the word preaching or proclaiming. And you'll notice in your Bible, if you have the New American Standard Version or Bible, that preaching is in italics, not parentheses, but in italics. What does that mean? When you read your Bible and see something in italics, what does that mean? That means that word is not in the original, in the original text they used, not the original, we don't have the originals, but was not in the text they used for translation. That word is inserted, and they're letting you know that that is inserted to what? To bring coherency and understanding to the text. And it's in context of what's being said there. So... The word preaching or proclaiming is inserted between in and the gospel. And this serves as a clarification of what Paul is saying and certainly serves the context of the whole paragraph, which if you look down at verse 15, he closes with expressing his eagerness to do what? To preach the gospel. So there Paul does actually use the word preach the gospel to them. So the God Paul serves by preaching the gospel of his son is the witness to the truthfulness of what Paul is about to say. And what exactly is that? Look at verse 9c, the last part of verse 9, and verse 10. He says here, 
I'll read the whole verse 9. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son. And look at this. That without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Let's look at this for a second. What is Paul's disposition towards these precious saints in Rome? What is Paul's disposition? Well, besides thankfulness for the steadfastness of the faith that we read in verse 8, now he mentions something else. Number one, he mentions incessant prayer. He says, without ceasing. Do you think he's just flippantly using words? Now, do I mean that Paul walks around 24-7, you know, that's all he's doing, he's not looking where he's going, he just, no, incessant means that what, what, what remains at the forefront of his mind daily are the, is the welfare of these saints. And as often as it, the, the Spirit of God moves upon him, he is willing to do what? To pray for them. What a lesson this is for us. Incessant prayer. This is something the apostle took very seriously. For example, give you some illustrations of this. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 16, Paul writes to the, to the Christians in Ephesus. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And then in Philippians 1, verses 3 and 4, he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, as often as it brought to his remembrance, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer all making my prayer with joy. In Colossians 1, 3 and 4, he says, We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. And then to the precious saints in Thessalonica that I just referred to a moment ago, Paul writes in chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, We give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers. What is Paul doing for believers? Praying incessantly. What does that say to us, church? What should we be doing? Not just for, not just for our saints across the, around the world, yes, uh, certainly, but for one another. We should pr be praying incessantly. I, I, am, I am persuaded and convinced that our disposition towards one another and towards other Christians, regardless of whether they are part of our church or anywhere, would be drastically changed and richly enhanced if we incessantly prayed for one another. We see from these examples that Paul was not only apostolic in authority, but was very pastoral in his care for the churches. He came as a slave of Christ as a servant of Christ, a minister of the gospel, a messenger of the glorious gospel of God's Son, not drawing attention to himself, but bringing men to Christ. The passion for Christ and the passion for Christ's people is evident in the ministry, labor, and work of the Apostle Paul. And next time we will continue to study his love for God's people in Rome. Thanks for tuning in to Crosswalk Radio, and we encourage you to visit our website at crosswalkdaytonabeach.org. Please join us again next time as we continue to teach, touch, and transform lives by faithfully proclaiming God's Word.